0: Hello, I'm Howard. Welcome to the 9320 podcast, the show that is doing a rain dance first thing every morning. I'd like to have a one-off podcast today, speaking to the author of a new book out in August, I think, I'll we'll check that in a second, titled The Dream Factory Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies. Uh, so good morning to Ryan Baldi. Good morning, Ryan. Morning, Howard. How's it going? Yeah, not bad, not bad, That's said. This is nothing personal against you, but the sooner we end this podcast, the sooner I can open the window again, <laughs> so if I start speaking really quickly then, I apologise for that, so. But yeah, the the English way to moan when it's sunny and moan when it's raining, so. but I'm okay. How are you doing yeah. anyway?
1: Yeah, I don't to buy the same. I've got a fan ready to go as soon as as, soon as we click off this. <laughs> uh, so the
0: book itself, what's the date that it's out, So. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, the 5th of August. 5th of August, not
1: long to go now.
0: Uh, are you excited no, about... No, three weeks or so. Yeah, you're excited about it coming out, of course.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're looking forward to, to getting out there. Um, as I was just uh, chatting off air, I mentioned I got, got the advanced copies through the other day, and that's always a really really special moment, kind of holding it in your hand for the first time, as I'm, as I'm sure you know. So, um, yeah, just looking forward to... So other people have been able to get their hands on it. Yeah. Uh, so what made you
0: want to write a book about youth football? When did you first start thinking well, about that, doing this book?
1: That's a good question. It's one um, I haven't been able to answer. <laughs> I, <haven't laughs> been able to I don't really remember. Um, I guess, kind of from a general point of view, I've always been interested in youth football, Um I think as most most football fans are, there's there's nothing quite like when a young player breaks through into the first team and that that fearlessness of youth on display. Um, So I guess it was kind of a desire to reverse engineer that process and and think about how they got there, um, how that journey begins. And also I think um, a lot of football fans know what a, a youth academy is in a very broad sense, that they know with in, in kind of vague terms whether their club has a good or a bad one based on how many players come through it. But I don't think a great deal is known uh about how about exactly what goes on behind the behind the doors of an academy. I think most clubs are quite closed off in that respect. So um, as best as possible, I wanted to kind of infiltrate that world and um, draw back the curtain and let, let everybody have a look at what's going on and and think about how this new generation of England players has been produced, not not least Phil Foden, um, but then also at what cost, because you know, we, we we hear mm. a lot about the, the downsides and the, the attrition rates um, and also the financial aspects. So it's really all-encompassing view is what I wanted to put together, uh, and it all just then depended on whether I'd be able to get the access that I needed to do it, which I wasn't sure about. Um but yeah, I managed to manage to get there and, and here we are, two and a half years later, it's it's all ready to go. Ooh, a long journey then. So am I right to say this is your second book?
0: Yes. So the the first one, the next big thing, was about wonder kids who lost their way. Yes, kind of it's paraphrased kind of the title of it there. Uh, so I just would. Did does it feel to you that these are linked to these books in a way, so.
1: It wasn't by design, but I think they are of a similar... I think anybody who would be interested in my first book would have, you know, there'd be a big crossover um, with those who'd be interested in this one and vice versa. Um, yeah, as I said, it wasn't wasn't by design. I wasn't thinking, okay, wh- how can I link my next book to my first one? It was very much a separate project. Um, but I guess both were born of a similar sort of fascination. Um, the first one, more about uh, the players who get to the first team level, then what happens to them thereafter. And and this one's kind of going back away and looking at at the point before they get there um, and everything that goes on in the academy. So um, yeah, there's there's definitely an overlap. Uh, It wasn't by design. The next ones uh, that I do probably won't, won't be so youth football related, but I think also it helped that the the contacts I was able to build up for the first book, um, many of them kind of were, would be able to sort of, I'd be able to go back to you and lean on again for this because they're in the same sort of sphere. And also just the general work that I do um, in my freelance day-to-day. Um, I do a lot of sort of uh, profiles of young footballers where I'm going and speaking with dozens of youth coaches and uh, friends and family of these young players to understand their, their journey and their story. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just... Um, a world I was very much um, comfortable in, uh, fairly knowledgeable in to begin with. Um, so I think I had kind of half a foot in the door, um, so to speak. Were you surprised at the access
0: you got in clubs? Because uh, you know, when people read this book, what is obviously key, you speak to a lot of people inside the game. Were you expecting a lot of resistance to actually getting that access? Were you pleasantly surprised or was it quite was, easy to get that access?
1: Um, yeah, that, that was my biggest kind of doubt around the book set was whether I'd be able to, to get the access I needed because I don't think it would have worked as a kind of, um, kind of a on the Academy world from the outside, looking in, I think I have to get in there and, and see what's going on and meet the people and speak to the, speak to all the different people that I spoke to. So I think it, the access was always going to be key. And like I said, it, it was by far the biggest doubt that I had at the outset of this book. Um, I wrote about it at the end, actually, in, in the acknowledgements, but I, mm. I, um, I remember the moment, uh, where, where I realized it would, it would be possible. Um, the first academy I visited was crystal palace. Um, and I remember being stood, uh, on the sidelines. It was February when it was, it was a blazing hot day. It was like in the mid twenties and the, the sun was shining. And I remember watching the, um, the groundsman amble by on a ride on lawnmower. And I was watching under 18's train and my notepad taking notes on it all. And I kind of did, sort of take pause and think, okay, well, I'm in now. Here we are. (laughs) I've managed to kind of, kind of uh, sneak into this world. But yeah, I did, um, I guess that was one of my biggest surprises was just how, how much access I was able to get into these worlds that seem quite closed off. Um, And I think the reason being is that um, I think while, while clubs um, themselves might be fairly closed off and fairly um, secretive about what goes on behind academy doors, I think for fear of fear of a negative press because there is so much negative press that's that's gone on around academies that they i think they just think well, okay let's just keep that keep that all, all to ourselves and we'll just do our work and, and get on with it i think the people who actually do the day-to-day work are the people whose feet touch the turf the coaches and academy managers they're all very proud of their work um and are keen to talk about it uh keen to learn what other people are doing and keen to you know Show off essentially what what their programs and, and the great work they did because there is so much really really great work being done and and it was by approaching those people directly <clears throat> that I was able to to get the access so for example there with the Crystal Palace one that was the first one I, I managed to get an email address for Gary at the academy manager there um, and that's how I arranged to go meet him I spent I spent an hour or so just chatting with him. At the academy knows that they're pretty much the whole day, just given license to roam wherever I wanted to, <laughs> which was really incredible. Um, and then I, I always say, a- access begets access. So once you've got in one place, it helps yeah. you get in another because you, you build the contacts, you can help you reach other people. Um, but you also have the uh, credibility uh, of being able to say, okay, I did this here with this person who you know, you know, so you, you can then approach other other people and um, they're more more open to letting you in. So that's kind of how it all started, and how that snowball started rolling.
0: Well, this podcast isn't about City, but it's probably a good place to start, as the book itself does mention City very early on, uh, right near the beginning. Uh, but I'm not going to dedicate this to you. You'll know, uh, talk about City. I want to obviously talk about the wider uh, aspect of youth football. Uh, but you did speak to Gareth Taylor, who at the time was the under-18s manager until last year. Uh, tell me how that went, and I ask about the access as well, because you know. I occasionally ask the odd employee if they want to come on a podcast and it seems like they have to go through lawyers to even come on, so it's impressive the access you get. I know City aren't the norm in that respect, they are, They do seem very closed off to me. But you managed to speak to Gareth Taylor as uh, the under-18s manager. Uh, how, how, how was that experience going to City and seeing that academy and speaking to Gareth?
1: Yeah, it was great, Gareth, Gareth was brilliant. Um, I actually met with him outside of the academy first and uh, we, I think we just met in a coffee shop near where he lived and had a couple of hours with him just chatting about City, about his own journey uh, and then about, of course, some of the players he's worked with, not least Foden and, and Jadon Sancho. Um, and then I was also able to go to the academy for the um, the Youth Cup final that year. So I think it was 2019 where they played Liverpool. Um, and that's how I was able to go and have a look around at at, at the academy facility, um, the CFA. Lost, Um, didn't they? Yes, lost on penalties, (laughs) yeah. yeah. We'll move on from that. eh? Yeah, (laughs) so, um, but no, it's also interesting, even though they lost, um, I wrote about it in the book, so the the very first chapter of the book, as you mentioned, City are very prominent very early on. The first chapter, I used it as kind of a table setter uh, for the rest of the book, was to explore City and everything that they've done with their academy all the finances that have been pumped in and and all the work that's been done there versus and kind of juxtaposed it with, with Barry's plight because I went to visit Barry as well, who were before they went bust were stationed at city's old training uh, base in in Carrington. Um, So it was a real eye opener as to the haves and the have nots because um, uh, from the moment I pulled onto the car park at at Barry's training ground, which used to belong to city, I I noticed that um, on the big facade at the front, the word Berry, Berry FC uh, Berry Football Club rather was missing a C and B from clubs that had fallen off and not been replaced and you can still see where the signage had been taken down from City so you can see the outline of the City crest you can see the outline of the words Abu Dhabi on there because um, it just had never had a lick of paint since the, since the day City left um, and it was really interesting to compare the two how they operated how City you know have, have all the money and the facilities and what that means to them and how that enables them to do the work they do and produce the players they produce um, and then how Barry combat that or did combat that before they went bust with, you know, with having very little um, finances and, and, and what that meant for them. So yeah, city very prominent early on a lot of talk about, um, about Foden and Sancho and, and how, how they, their development process works. Um, and yeah, and the, the chat with Gareth was great. Um, he was really open. Um, I don't think, um, actually yeah i approached gareth similar similarly to how i approached gary so i went directly to him rather than going through the club um but it was only after speaking to him we kind of um uh what, what's the old phrase it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission or something like okay. that so um he had to kind of get a retrospective okay from the city people and they did say well okay you've got that now but we probably would have said no if you'd have come to us first yeah. <laughs> so yeah that kind of uh gave gave you a bit of insight into, into how closed off it can be. So I went directly to Gareth and was able to speak with him for a good couple of hours. I've had a great chat around around everything there. And uh, yeah, he's he's a really smart guy. Um as you can see now the success he's had. Uh and the promotion the promotion he had to the City women's team. Um he's done some really good work, worked with some really you know been quite key to the development of some some very uh, important players for City and players who've gone on to do very well elsewhere. So yeah, it's great to get his insight.
0: Did, did, speaking to Gareth and others, of course, did it surprise you what their job entails? So I get the feeling from the book that we think uh, a youth manager is very different to being a senior manager. I mean, even a senior manager, you have to be a psychologist, a man management, you know, have to put an arm around some. But I think, for me, I, you know, I always get the impression that that's just exacerbated at youth level, that you're, you're basically an all-in-one person and a lot more than a manager. Is it fair to say that, that his role is... Really, just guidance and yeah, looking after, basically, youngsters as much as anything.
1: Yeah, and that's the way it should be, I think. That's one of the things I was most surprised about and also quite heartened to learn is that so many of the coaches I spoke to and the academy managers, and as I said, the people doing the day-to-day work, are really cognizant of just what a great responsibility they hold to the young people entrusted to them because uh, that's what they are, that they're young people, they're children for the most part, um, and they're very aware of that. So while there is um, a need to instill discipline, and there are a lot of X's and O's coaching going on to develop them as footballers, there's also an appreciation that these are still, these are developing young people as well, and that the the vast majority of them aren't going to go on and have a career in a game, let alone at the the club they're currently at. So it's about making sure the experience that they have in the academy is enriching, that they go away not feeling like um, a portion of their life has been dedicated to football for, for nothing in the end. So I think that's something that's still really big gaps in in the games, um, the games welfare and, and and aftercare offerings, even though they have improved, there's still a long way to go in that. But I think um, the work the coaches do on a, on a day-to-day basis and the, the aftercare, like I wrote back in the book how Gareth mentioned that he um, keeps in touch He he has the best relationships, pretty much, with with some of the players who who didn't make it through, who were released because he kept in touch and and looked out for them, helped them set set up trials elsewhere, uh, and was just kind of there as as an ear for them when they needed it. Um, And that that was reflected across a lot of clubs with the coaches I spoke with, even though, as I mentioned, the the actual governing bodies and, and the clubs themselves um are often found lacking in, in that kind of aftercare and, uh, and and the duty of care element um so yeah that that was something that is is a big part of the youth coach's role um as it should be i think um it, it might surprise a lot of people who get into the game wanting to be a coach wanting to work with young people and develop them as footballers um and i think it is a learning curve for a lot of coaches to, to realize um you know that these are young people they all come from different backgrounds that you can't uh, the old sort of sergeant major approach probably doesn't work anymore, nor should it. So, it's it, that's been a real development, as far as I could tell from from the coaches I spoke with, and, and certainly something Gareth was was very aware of. Uh, I'm sure we're going to come back
0: to that duty of care in a bit on this podcast, but just quickly, I assume he was pretty effusive about Phil Foden
1: and perhaps and yeah. Sancho
0: as well. To be fair, so.
1: yeah, for sure. No, he was. They were. Um, they were obviously the two standout talents of the under-16s group that he had that then went on to become... I think he might have worked with both under-18s as well. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how the, the timelines overlap, but yeah, he did work with them um, for an extended period of, of two or three years. Um, yeah, he, he couldn't speak more, more highly if so I actually spoke with Garrett fairly recently again. Um, for I've oh, Actually, yeah, I, I did a piece on Jalen Sancho um, for, for the BBC probably a couple of years ago, just looking looking at his background, looking at who he is and, and, um, what separates him as a talent and what, what, um, stands out as about him as a person. And I spoke with Gareth again about that, about Jaden. And he was saying that there was a lot of misconception around Jaden, at the time about him being indisciplined and, and lazy or whatever the, the tags might have been at the time that, you know, that he said that couldn't be from the truth. Um, and then again, just a, a few weeks ago, I was speaking with a lot of people at city for, for a, an in-depth profile of Phil Foden that I did for World Soccer Magazine. And again, it was, it was the same sort of stories that are in the book about how Phil, um, Foden is just very dedicated from, from day one. He did everything that was asked of him. Um, he seemed, you know, if anyone was going to make it to where he is now, it it was going to be him. He was on this kind of predestined path being the local boy, the, the, the guide in light in the Academy for all the players that came after him. Um, and now he's used as an example, you know. So Gareth was saying that the players that, that he coached after Phil had moved on, he was saying, you know, look, Phil Foden did this, so you know, it worked for him. It, it would work for you too. It was he was able to get buy-in from from the players that came after Foden. Um, it was also interesting as well to hear him talk about how, um, and this ties in with with the real sort of. Um, the real what what's really in vogue with, with coaching in, in this country within academies, it seems, at the moment. Um, a lot of the top clubs now are adopting what, what they're calling an individual-focused approach where, rather than trying to create good teams at youth levels, they're, they're disregarding or at least de-emphasising results um, in favour of focusing intently on the individual needs of each person within the team. So, uh, as that relates to Foden, Gareth laid out for me that... Um, Sometimes he would say it might be to the detriment of the team to play Phil in central midfield uh, right. at a certain age because he was so small I and mean, he was so kind of behind the curve physically. They might have had a big game where the other had really physical players and it would have been a safer bet to put Foden out wide on the wing or even just put him on the bench for that game. But he um, he knew that playing him uh, was the right thing to do and he knew that he had to play in central midfield to be able to see the pictures that they wanted him to see. That that was the, the way you described it to me. So... That was interesting to to kind of understand how Foden was was, uh, tested in certain ways and um, stretched, as they call it uh, in the game, to stretch his capabilities and and, and challenge him in new ways because the game did kind of come so easy to him that that he would be put in scenarios that he had to figure out and it was almost a trial by fire in certain respects. Um, So yeah, that that was really interesting how it related specifically to, to Foden's development.
0: Uh, I, I think you mention it, but I mean it is quite clear that the academy at City is a money-making machine. Even if its original intention—I can't remember who spoke about it originally—might be Brian Marwood or someone. You know about bringing players through, and Foden's an anomaly in that respect. Mm. But it has made the academy a lot of money. It pays for itself. There's two ways to look at it. It pays for to you know make big signings, or it should be bringing youth through. Uh, obviously, opinions differ were city an only for you in that respect or did you see it with a lot of the big clubs that academies are becoming a little more than a way to make money for to make yeah you know, for ready-made big name signings or yeah. city quite an exception in that regard
1: no it's the same everywhere um there might be a slight difference in how each um each need is prioritized that was something i asked every every academy manager i spoke with i asked them to kind of Rank the, the uh, priorities of their of their academy, whether it's bringing through players to the first team, whether it's producing players for sale, or or whatever else it might be. Um, but both both those things are are kind of monitored and targeted at pretty much everywhere you'll go. Um, academies a lot of money is spent on them, um, depending on on the the level of academy a club runs there's, there's associated cost of, of millions of pounds each year um, and I think there's a real desire for, for clubs to for their academies to be self-sustaining um, City certainly is cities um, I think goes beyond that it's, it's also a profit making venture as you mentioned they, they've sold more than I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I wrote about it in the book. Um, there was a period of time uh, of 18 months or so where they raised, I think, over £100 million through mm. sales of players who either hadn't played at all for the first team or had barely scratched the surface of first team football and would be sold on elsewhere the likes of Brahim Diaz or Angus Gunn, whoever whoever it might be. Um, so yeah, it, it's something that every club focuses on and Gareth Taylor did it did say as well that while he, he wouldn't go into the specifics, he wouldn't go into the exact figures, he did admit that he was targeted on um, on player sales, you know, that there was a there was a very real need for him as part of his job to bring through, through players who were able to be sold elsewhere at a profit. And then it's interesting as well in the same chapter, as I said, I I I, uh, I visited Berry and, and and juxtaposed their their situation with cities. They were even more explicit there. I spoke to the Academy manager Mark Lutherland um, and he, he was saying that their priority b- before before getting players in the first thing their priority is, is, is raising players for sale to what he called their customers. Uh, he referred to championship and Premiership mm. clubs as, mm. as their Premier League clubs as their customers. Um, and it was really interesting to learn that at sort of 11 or 12 years of age, Barry would sort of uh, categorize their best prospects as being the, the players they would develop for sale. And then their sort of B-level prospects would be the ones who might then go on to get in their first team. So it was a, it was a different priority there. I think at City they still would want the be-all and end-all. Their academy would be to get players into the first team. They have, as I'm sure you know, the the bridge that goes over, over the road between the uh, academy stadium and the Etihad. Uh, it has a practical use of course to, to aid f- foot traffic uh, across, across that busy road between the two stadiums but it also is a pretty clear pretty on the nose metaphor for what they want their academy to be that bridge to the first team um, and as I wrote in the book um, until Phil Foden came along and really cracked it it was kind of an empty metaphor for a lot of years I think probably Mika Richards and uh, Michael Johnson that that kind of era would have been the last players to make a real sustained impact at first team level and of course they came before um, the investment of 2008 and onwards so there's a real a real need for somebody to come through and justify all this investment all this um, all these facilities and, and that, that bridge that goes between the academy stadium and, and the first team And Foden has done that and um, and and I said in the book he's, he's kind of like a canary down the coal mine I, to a lot of the players who are coming after him because uh, as Gareth Taylor laid out that they were using Phil as an example of somebody who would had all the talent yes but also had worked as hard as it was possible to work and and had done everything that was asked of him by the coaches so I think players coming behind him would have looked at him and thought if he can't get through then what chance do I have and maybe potential signings for the academy might have looked elsewhere players already there might have looked at their options and decided to go elsewhere but the fact that you know, if Foden has of that path now, and it has shown that there is a pathway for, for the best players. Then, it kind of justifies the whole operation, I think.
0: Did it feel like conveyor belt to you, though, Well of youth players when you went to? I mean, you went to United, of course. So, uh, to go to Chelsea as well? Is that correct?
1: Uh, no, I didn't go to Chelsea, correct, but yeah. I did speak with Mason Mount's dad uh, yeah. and got some. Uh, you know, I've spoken with Chelsea scouts and stuff as well. So there's a lot of interest to Chelsea there as well. Yeah.
0: Does it feel like the modern? set up at these clubs is a genuine development tool for youth players or a money-making machine or does it just have to be is it just so huge this operation so many being churned through it's a bit of both in a way
1: yeah it's definitely it's definitely both there is def, there is for sure uh, an element of of real sustained development that's going on is these, these clubs now more so than ever as we've seen um The proof and the pudding at international level with all the young players and the England team that's that's doing so well. Um, I think that's evidence of the great work that's being done by the coaches and academies. Um, But yeah, the the attrition rates are off through the roof because there are so many uh, uh, young players in the academies. So there's a lot of, you know, 90% plus will fall away before they ever get anywhere near the first team. But yeah, there's, there's even at City where Foden is still the only one who's really. As I said, got through on a in a real meaningful, sustainable way. Um, There's a conveyor belt of talent. They're just not. They're just having careers elsewhere, um, which a lot of people in the game will say. You know, that's kind of that's modern development at the at the uh, at the highest level. Because while City. And clubs of their ilk have got the best facilities and pump the most money into their academies and, and want to recruit the best young players. They're also doing the same thing at, at senior level as well, but on an even greater scale. So the two, in a way, become competing interests because uh, there's just a, 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 an immediacy uh, to to the demands on on first team managers at the biggest clubs. There's, there's a need for success. Yeah. yesterday. So there isn't necessarily always that patience for bringing through great waves of young players who need, who you know, uh, by by um, by definition they need a, a trial and error process when they get to the first team. They need to be able to learn and make mistakes and learn from them. Um, they're not going to come in and have the impact that, say, for example, a sixty million signing from La Liga might do. I think that
0: comes for the fans as well, because I think yeah, about that sure. with City a lot. It's like City have to win. Everything, all the time. It comes from the media, it comes from the fans, it comes from winning the league and the League Cup, is was considered by a few Blues, I think, as an underwhelming season because of the Champions League final. And because yeah. they didn't win a quadruple. Well, how on earth are you going to integrate youth players into the first team and let them go into the team if you literally cannot drop points at any? Yeah. It just, I mean, it would be so much easier if we just lowered expectations. Yeah. Brought through these so, youth players and accepted for a couple of years, we might not win much, but there's just no way that would be accepted by fans now. I don't think.
1: Yeah. So, for example, while I'm sure most City fans would love to see a Taylor Howard, Berak Palace come through, or a Tommy Doyle come through and, and join Foden in the first team, that would be a great, great advert for the club and great to see the young, young homegrown talents come through. Um, a year ago, if, if Guardiola would come out and said, okay. Um, Rather than spend sixty million or whatever it might have been on on a new centre back, you know, rather than sign Diaz, we're going to give Howard Bellis uh, a real sustained run in the team, or you know rather than you know we're going to sell Gunduan because Tommy Dawes coming through and it might take time, it might cost us points here and yeah. there, but it's going to be a long term project. It'd be interesting to see how something like that would be received because like like you said, I think while everybody loves seeing young players come through, they also they also don't really want to accept the the process that that necessitates uh, yeah. and the fact that it does require patience.
0: And I think if City had started in 2008 bringing youth through, you'd have seen a bigger patience. But because they knew financial fair play was coming, they top loaded a lot of big signings to get the club moving a lot quicker before the drawbridge came down. Uh, and I think if the, you know, I'm not complaining about anything, <laughs> I'm spoilt to, you know, to death as a City fan. But if they'd introduced the youth all the way, there'd been a slightly different level of patience, I think. But well, they're at the point now where they just must win everything. It's just, yeah, uh, which is a shame. And But I guess Phil Foden does show that if you are really good enough, you know, a lot that have been picked up just weren't good enough at the end of the day and haven't gone on to conquer the world. But hopefully Phil Foden shows that there is a chance uh, but it it must put some youth players off knowing that it is harder to get through. So it's understandable why someone like Jaden Sancho will go to Germany, knowing he'll be straight in the team.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a catch twenty two, isn't it? Because you go yeah. to City, you get the benefit of the best possible coaching, the best possible facilities, um, but also it with the awareness that the pathway there is, is narrower than it would be elsewhere. Probably as narrow as anywhere, just because. City are as good as any team in the world. You know, to get into that team, you have to be one of the the very best in the world in your position. So it's just unlikely you could have the the 50 best young players in the world, but how many of them within a year or two are going to be good enough to play, you know, are going to be one of the best two or three players in the world in their position, which is essentially what you need to be to, to hold down a place at City. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's really difficult. And like I said, I think it's because City is so trained on success. Um, at first team level, as well as is the case elsewhere, um, you yeah, know, that's why Chelsea, I think, didn't get too many players through. It's why I think probably the Barcelona production line hasn't been what it what it used to be. Um, it, it, you know, to, to get the likes of Iniesta and uh, and Messi through when they did, um, it coincided with a bit of a, a slump that that you know, the, the, that kind of the back end of the Rycard era where things went down is when. Expectations might have been lowered a little bit, and there was, was that desire to try something different. So those players came through. Whereas mm. City are, are kind of a juggernaut, um, driven towards constant success every year. You know, like you said, win, winning the league. <laughs> um, yeah, such a canter they did. You might kind of had a bit of a, a negative feeling at the end of the year because of the way the Champions League final went. So that's just that's the standards that you're dealing with, and it's going to be difficult for any young player to, to break through. Whatever club it might be, when when the standards are so high like that,
0: yeah, no, I'm not sure. Carabao Cup appearances are a really you know, a gateway to, exactly. to the first team <laughs> yeah. for the Champions League or league. Uh, uh, this probably links to your first book uh, next big thing. Is, did you is the support network there for those that do get well disposed of? you know, like who don't make the grade at, at clubs like City or United or Chelsea or any any club really. Because it can yeah. be, Darren, we've seen news, you know, tragic news stories uh, and st- a lot of stories about how devastated it is for youngsters to be, you know, to not make the grade at a club where they, you know, to have the dreams shattered at such a young
1: age. Yeah. Well, this this was a big part of, of the book as well. Um, there are a couple of chapters that go really deeply into the welfare and aftercare aspects and the duty of care clubs and uh, governing bodies that owe to the players within the system. Um, and while it certainly has improved... Um, you know, since the advent of, of the elite player performance plan in in 2012 the, the set of rules and guidelines that govern youth football uh, in the top four leagues in this country uh, that, that brought in things like the, the need for each club to have uh, a full-time welfare officer to have better educational provisions um, and to have protocols in place for um, not just how players are, are let go but what what have to get receive thereafter those are all things that have come in and, and improved the, the landscape what I found from the people I spoke with. So I spoke to people within governing bodies within, I spoke to the EFL's head of youth, um, David Weatherall. I spoke with people at clubs. I spoke with people outside the game. I spoke with parents of players who've been released. And I spoke with players themselves who've been released. My, um, overall view on it coming away from all that is that while things have improved, it seems that the game itself, the governing bodies and, and the people, um, the decision makers at clubs and the policy shapers, they believe they're a lot closer to cracking the issue of, of welfare and aftercare than the experiences of the people I spoke to would suggest. There's, there's, there's a much bigger gap between where uh, where the people who've been through it and experienced it think the, the aftercare and welfare offering is versus what the, the game itself thinks it's aftercare is. It thinks it's a lot more adequate than, than uh, what it really is is, is what I found. Um, so for example, uh, as I said, I spoke to players who've been released. Um, I, I looked at uh, players who had been released at the younger ages. So the, there was a boy who was training with. He, he was seven years old when he was released. Um, he, the, the chapter is called "Dear Parent Guardian," and the reason I, I named it that is because I was uh, the, the parent of this player that I spoke uh, that, that I'm speaking about here was able to um, to give me the email that he was sent by the club that released him. Uh, as I said, he was seven. Uh, that, that still um, clubs aren't allowed to sign young players to exclusive contracts until they reach under nines level until they get to eight years old. So he was still able to train with other clubs. Uh, so he was actually trained with four Premier League Category 1 clubs in London at the time. Um, he'd been with one in particular since he was four years old. So pretty much half his life he'd been with this one club. Um, he broke his leg when he was uh, around six playing for one of the other clubs. Uh, and it was just when he got back to fitness that he went back to the original club uh, I was training with them, and he he was he was let go within a couple of weeks of getting back to fitness and training without any prior warning, without any prior indication that he had fallen behind the curve developmentally. And the email that he received, his parents received, it, that they were able to pass on to me, and I re- reproduced in the book, was just really impersonal. Um, and I called it Dear Parent Clodding because at the top of the email, was, it was one of those sort of boilerplate uh, emails where you, you, you click and infill the name of the recipient, which they just hadn't bothered yeah. to do, so they left it as brackets, dear slash parent, dear parent slash guardian. Um, and, and at no point did it mention the boy by name, at no point did it mention the parent by name. It was all just very vague um, uh, sort of platitudes about thanking them for allowing allowing their boy to, to play with their this club's development centre. And they said, well, they don't offer specific feedback for children at that age, They you ordinarily players are released could do with working on X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's just really impersonal. So I looked at that whole aspect of how players are released, how that's dealt with. Um, and, and what I found was that speaking with uh, David Weatherall, the, the head of youth from the EFL, he was saying that the way it's supposed to work is that they, they have a robust feedback mechanism in place whereby um, players and parents are constantly receiving feedback about how their their boy or girl is, um, is doing in relation to the developmental curve the bell curve of of their 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 peer group and if at any point they're falling behind they'll be aware of it and 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 then when the eventual release comes it should have been on the cards for a while they should have been able to kind of see it coming and prepare for it but that's just not the experience of the people i spoke to they said it often does kind of come out of the blue with with no prior warning and that's when it's really devastating to the to the kids and then i then i went and looked at it at slightly older age groups and how when you, with the players who still want to try and try and make a career in the game once they're released from the club, uh, the trial processes that they go on and how that in itself can be quite devastating. So I spoke with Marvin Sordell, um, the former England Under 21 and Premier League player, um, about his experience going to the uh, the exit trials, as they're called, which is like a, a mass uh, trial event for release players. It's been likened to a sort of capital market where. Any player released from a Premier League or EFL academy has the option to go to these trial events that are usually held at either a non-league ground or or on the grounds of somewhere like Loughborough uh, Loughborough University. Um, And there'll be 100 or so scouts from different clubs all up and down the leagues on the sidelines. And these boys are thrown together into makeshift teams, playing with players they have no sort of prior relationship or on-field chemistry with. Often asked to play out out of position and they might have a a 20, 30-minute run out in which to impress the, the scouts on the sidelines, and that itself is quite a pressure environment. Um, even though that's seen as something that, like, a positive that the game offers—that you know, we give we give that opportunity to young players. Um, it's kind of a, a trial by fire that they're not always prepared for, and it can it can be quite devastating in itself when you when, when you realise the circumstances around it and how difficult it can be for them to to uh, to have to try and thrive in that environment. Um, and then I also spoke to a player who was let go by Fulham. Um, and he talked about how one week after being told he wasn't good enough by Fulham at 16, he went on a trial with Brentford and he was told he wasn't good enough there. Then it was Colchester, again, rejection. Before he knew it, he'd had four or five or six unsuccessful trials in the space of a few weeks. And he found himself playing in, in the eighth or ninth tier for semi-professionally just to kind of keep his toe in the game. And, and the, the title of that chapter is How Much Rejection Can You Face? And that, uh, how many times can you face rejection? And that's because that, that, those are his words to me, kind of his rhetorical, exasperated questions. How many times can, I, can you face rejection mm. when, uh, when you're at such a young and vulnerable age? That, that, that kind of compounding rejection, that, that the, the knockback after knockback after knockback is, is where um, players can really suffer and become vulnerable. Um, and that's certainly what I found. And again, something the game doesn't seem to be, pre- be prepared to deal with. Um, and as it relates to city again, to kind of bring it back to, to my experiences of learning about city's operations, they do have you know a, a pretty strong welfare team and, and aftercare aspect. But um, I spoke with a guy called Paul Mitten, who was a former. A youth player at Man United in the 90s, as part of the class of '93, so he came just after the famous uh, class of Beckham and Button goals and the Nevilles and all of those. Um, he went through it himself. He was he was released quite unceremoniously, then faced you know the years of rejection, fell out of love with the game, and really struggled for a few years. He's now a personal trainer, um, and he he has worked with a coach at United to put together a program called Revive in the Northwest, where he works with players who have been let go by United, City, Liverpool. Um, they come to him. Um, and because he's a personal trainer, he can get them fit. He can get them into shape. He can give them football coaching because of his background in the game. Uh, he also works with people who can offer counselling for players who feel they need that. And he has the contacts to, to set up trials for players who want to try and stay in the game. He's put together this really great program that he's seen, seen really works because what what he feels is one of the biggest issues is that when these players release from academies and they go in this process of trial after trial, they're just not fit enough to be able to do that and to be able to show their best best selves. So you know because players have been let go. Uh, tend to be the ones who've been on the on the outskirts of the team and not they're not they're not fully match fit because they haven't played enough. Um, so he gets them into shape and, and and really helps them sort of mentally and physically to get back uh, in into a position where they can they can thrive and and if they want to really make a fist of a career in the game that they're in a better position to do that. He is of the opinion that that's the kind of service clubs should be offering anyway. Um, he was saying to me that you know it's not just a phone call; it's all well and good having a welfare team. We're going to Give the players a phone call every month to check how they're doing. But when a young young lad gets a phone call from somebody he's, he has no prior relationship with, yeah. asking him how he's doing, he's just going to say, "Yeah, I'm all right." <laughs> he's not going to he's not going to open up. There's not a prior
0: relationship, especially over the phone as well.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's kind. Of, it's, it's it goes back to the whole sort of impersonal approach to to welfare and aftercare that the game has. And, and, and Paul Minton, he's he said to me, he met with, with City and it, he's, he's met with governing bodies, tried to get, you know, what he'd like to see is essentially his approach replicated by by the governing bodies at different places throughout the country. So every boy released from an academy or every girl has the chance to to, to do something like the program he's put together. But he's faced nothing but closed doors and City were one of the clubs he met with. And um, he said, he told them, you know, the way things are going, it's not going to be long here before... One of the, one of the players you release is going to go away and and, and, and kill himself, and lo and behold, a few months later, you had the tragic story of Jeremy Weston, which, which is just obviously is just utterly heartbreaking for for that to happen over football, and it just seems that things like that, tragedies like that, uh, and that's you know that's not the only example. It's happened with other clubs, with other players, um, other other scenarios. You know, falling into back in you know players who come from underprivileged backgrounds, falling falling into bad circles when they leave the game. Um, I liken it often to uh, soldiers when they leave the army, you know, that they, they have their whole routine stripped away from them and it can be difficult for them to cope with, with uh, everyday life again. Um, that's kind of what these young boys are going through. And it seems that the support while it has improved is still, it's still too much of kind of a, an en masse approach because the numbers in the game are so high and it's still very impersonal. It's just, it's not, it's not quite adequate at this time.
0: I know you mentioned in the book about, I mean, City had an under five elite group, which they yeah. defended, I think, saying it's not, yeah, it's not play signed up. It's just a training at the club. It's you no know, commitment they could do, play for other clubs as well. Uh, by Munich themselves have limited, Is it? was it 12, did you say? I think the, the, so. I think
1: it's, it's, it's 11 yeah, or 12.
0: 11 I think, or 12. Yeah. yeah, they won't sign a player to that age. So
1: the, the question is, are clubs just taking kids on far too young? I think so. And what was really interesting for me to learn was that a lot of the the coaches, almost almost to a to a person, the coaches and the academy managers I spoke with, would agree that they're taking players too young. Um, I mean, of course, it's out of their hands; they're not the policy shapers. They're just the people um, doing, you know, like I said, the day to day work on the training grounds and dealing with these players. But they almost all of them would like to see the age at which play uh, clubs consign players raised be that to ten or eleven or twelve. Um, because they they, they realise that it's important for kids to be kids and not have that kind of pressure put on them, not you know not become um, infatuated with the idea of of wearing the club crest on their training gear and being part of the club coming into the into that um, situation. Um, so yeah, the, I think clubs uh, are signing players too young, um, but but the issue is that you know Bayern were able to do what they did because they occupy a very privileged position within German football. They yeah. are kingpin they sit at the top of the mountain and no one's no one's close and they know that they can say okay we're not gonna sign any players below the age of 12 whatever it might be um because they know full well that even if that means they miss out on the best talent they might miss out on the next I don't know Joshua Kimmich or or the next um Tony Cruz whoever it might be who might end then go and sign for Leverkusen or Dortmund or uh, Ingolstadt or uh, or whoever might, um, they know that down the line they're just going to go and sign them anyway if they really want them. If, if they turn out to be good enough, they'll go and get them because that's you know, their model for the last decade has been on cannibalising German football and, and taking the best talent.
0: There's a hierarchy, all you know, in, in every league, isn't there? After all, Jason Sancho was a, a Watford
1: player, but yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> the City chance. take him, and then someone takes him off City. It's like but, it is yeah. a the reason yeah. The reason that. Um, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't have the same sort of dynamic in England is because there are at least six clubs who sit at the top of the food chain here. They're yeah. all competing yeah. with each other. So while they might all agree that it's best to to not sign players so young, the the one team who would continue to do so would stand to benefit the most because they'd hoover up the, next the best talent and then they'd have them on their books. And, and you know, so City might say, okay, we're going to not sign anyone from 12. But if they see the next Kevin De Bruyne I go to, to uh, Man United at the age of nine um, they know that they're probably they're not going to have the easy path of buying have to go and re-sign that player down the line so this what I've called in the book the, the arms race for talent it perpetuates mm. because of that that level of competition
0: I mean I've been very negative from my lines of questioning here I've been around the academy uh, obviously serve senior players as well as you know all players and it's they do a lot very well indeed you know the, the education and uh, so I didn't want it to come across as negative, but uh, it it does still blow you away. You know when you read this book, just what I, I think most people just don't know what's going on behind the scenes and how brutal it can be in a way. Um academies, am I right say saying academies used to be about developing local talent only? You know, decades ago. Do you feel that link is still there? That most still have a? Do they have like targets for local talent? Because of course now city are scouring for. South American 16 year I mean, Brexit's going to change things, is it not, about what legally they can do. Uh, they can't European under-18s, yeah. could they not say? But you know, before that, obviously, they would scour
1: mm-hmm. the world for young talent where it never used to be that way. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah, as you mentioned there, the, the idea of, of an affiliated youth team when it originated in the 1930s was with the the, the notion that it would help foster a a greater local connection um, between the fans and the club by, by providing opportunities to the local youth. Um, That's the reason it started kind of as a be all and end all. Obviously it's evolved to the point now where it's about much more than that. Um, So yeah, it's it's different now. Um, And again, like you said, Brexit will, will, will shape things again because we, we did see an influx of, of players from EU countries who were able to come over from 16 and, um, who were kind of filling up Academy teams at the, at the highest levels. Um, that, that tap has been switched off now. Um, United Hoover. So there'll be no, before no the foreign players essentially. Off.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly. That, yeah. They were one I mentioned in the book. They, they kind of seem to be aware that that tap was about to be turned <laughs> off. And, and when hell for leather and seemed to sign five or six EU players in each transfer window, um, yeah, with, with, with the full awareness that, you know, most of them wouldn't get anywhere near the first team, but they would be able to turn a quick profit on it. Um, so they were making the most of that that pipeline before it stopped, to, <laughs> before before it dried up. Um, so yeah, that's going to affect things. That will, I think, the, the main knock-on effect will be that, or I guess it'll be twofold, it'll be that. Um, well, because now that they can't sign players from EU countries, uh, 16 like they used to, it's going to be, uh, you, you know, FIFA laws prevent um, clubs, um, players from moving continents before the age of 18. So it's going to give an extra couple of years for the... The British players already in the academy systems to develop. So the you know, the, the the competition for places within the within the youth teams isn't going to be so stiff at the under sixteens age group and under eighteens, it's gonna go a little bit higher than that. Um so that's gonna be the, the, the kind of main knock on effect, as well as like you said, clubs looking out to South America or, or Africa or whatever it might be when for for the eighteen year old talent, because they'll be just as easy to acquire as, as the U players are now. Um but yeah, as to whether whether or not Academies are still um, kind of local interests, community interests. Um, I certainly think it's it's less the case than it used to be. Um, What's really uh, interesting about it is that, um, as I mentioned, the the Elite Player Performance Plan, each of peers, it's known, um, these set of rules, one of the rules that it lays out is that academies aren't allowed to recruit players who live further than a 90-minute drive from their... Academy base, uh, so that's their catchment area. They've got a radius of a ninety-minute drive around their academy. Um, so that that is designed to sort of stop um, young boys and girls having too much tra- travel time each week. So you know, uh, so yeah, that that's kind of the, the reason it's brought in as a as a welfare element to stop kids having to spend too much time. Uh, I mean, ninety minutes is still too much anyway, isn't it? Really, when you think about it. But that's what's in place now. But but if you're a Category One academy. Um, which means, yeah, each P um has an audit process. Each academy is regularly audited based on its uh, its offering, its facilities, its staffing levels, its budget, um, and given a, a category uh distinction. So category one being the highest, which is your cities, your United's there are about there are around twenty five, I think, category one academies at the moment. Um, with Leeds and Crystal Palace um being among the the newer ones to, to to join that group. And it goes all the way down to category four. If you're a category one academy, one of the benefits you are given is that you're allowed to recruit nationally from the age of fourteen. So you are not bound to the, the ninety minute catchment area from uh the under fourteens level and up. Whereas for everyone else that you, you can't recruit at that age until they're six uh, can't recruit nationally until sixteen. So um it's, it's interesting that it's seen as kind of a perk to be able to recruit nationally um, at, at a younger age for, for the best academies. Uh, I think the reason they do that is because they they figure that the uh, the welfare element uh, of, of the, the amount of travel or the necessity of having to move house uh, and maybe live in, in digs or with, with house parents at the age of 14 is outweighed by the exposure these players would have to the, the top-level facilities and the prospects it would then give them. Um, so that is kind of a step away from a very sort of local approach, but but Middlesbrough one of the clubs that I spoke with, um, uh, that I went to and visited and spent time with their academy manager, assistant academy manager there, they are a club who are still very much in tune to the uh, the local community and the, and, the, and the Middlesbrough fans, and they they see their academy um, as very much a, you know as being a tool for opportunities. For the local youth, they they prioritize local local recruitment and development. Um, they still see it as a way of staying connected to the, the fans and to their, to their their location. Um, Crystal Palace are another one I want to see because they're based in South London, which is a, a hotbed of football talent comparable to anything in the world. It's kind of on a level with the Paris suburbs of the amount of talented young footballers that come from this small patch of land in, in South London. It's quite incredible, and you know they're, they're able to tap into that um being being as part of that being being where they're based and being local to that so so local recruitment for them is huge too so there are clubs out there who still do feel like that that local connection is something to be to be guarded and, and ring fenced and looked after and something that is important but i think um some of the bigger sort of uh, talent factors, as you might want to call them um don't necessarily, you know, they'll say they, they, they don't discriminate, they'll take the talent from wherever, wherever they can get it because, you know, you, you like to say, it's either a money-making venture or it's with, with the idea of getting the best players through to the first team wherever they come from.
0: Yeah, the drive for success, you know, yeah with the bigger clubs. I watched the interesting uh, three-part series on the BBC last three Mondays about the, Oli- the Olympic success uh, on the dark days of the Atlanta Olympics and the drive for success... And that asks the same question: At what cost? Yeah, uh, was all this success that culminated in the London Olympics? I think Victoria Pendleton, especially, t- looks at a gold medal with very, well, gold medals with very mixed emotions because it was such a brutal conveyor belt towards success. Uh, I'm not saying football is exactly the same, but the the same question always arises: At what cost? But I think, as you make clear in the book, uh, duty care. The standards are still far, far higher than the old days of bullying and, of course, the sex abuse stories that have come out since then. uh, The duty of care is, of course, still much higher than it used to be decades ago, even if it can be a very brutal business. That's fair to say, is it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, Yeah, it's definitely – it has improved, that's for sure. Again, it's something I looked looked into in the book. I looked at – I spoke with a, a guy who was at Aston Villa um, was a victim of bullying there. They had quite a, a culture of, of bullying among the coaches that, was, that came out in recent years. I spoke with a survivor of abuse from the sexual abuse scandal that, that's come out recently to kind of trace back, you know, what the dark old days were like and, and how it's changed now and all the great work that's being done because there's so much great work. And again, it's mostly by the coaches, as I mentioned, and the academy managers, people doing the day-to-day work, um, and being so aware of, of the development of of young people over 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 footballers um and that's something that has been a vast improvement to my mind, and something that I was really encouraged to learn about um that's one been one of my biggest takeaways is just how how much good work is being done by good people um but yeah th- there are still gaps, and I think what's most alarming is just the just the sheer numbers the vastness of it this this system that's taken in. 12,000 just on the boys' side, and this is just as it relates to, to players who are signed to exclusive contracts in the academy, so from the under-9s age grouping up, there are around 12,000 boys in the academy system. Um, and I spoke with a journalist, David Kahn, who's done a lot of great work in this area, um, and he said, if we accept that this is a system that takes in 12,000 boys, and we accept that 90 plus percent of them, even in the most conservative estimates, don't get through, then we've got to look at it from the opposite perspective. These aren't dream factories, these academies. They're crushing of dream factories. That's their primary product. Their primary product is boys who are sold a dream and who are then let go rather unceremoniously. So much more focus has got to be placed on on the welfare aspect of the duty of care of Preparing the the boys um, and the girls and the girls' side for that rejection and making sure that the 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 um, the experience they have in the academies is enriching beyond the, the purely football element and, and 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 we've got to do more to make sure that the blow when it comes isn't isn't crushing as as it can be. Um, but, so yeah, that he had a really interesting perspective on if, it.
0: If you take that many on, you're going to have to reject a huge proportion of them. It's- it's the only answer. Not to, you know the rejection comes right at the beginning by being more selective, and but well, I guess that's not, the system doesn't work as well for the clubs that is, rather than the players. If yeah, they take on fewer players, they want that churn, don't they?
1: Again, it's that arms race for talent. Again, it's, yeah. it's what's
0: perpetuating it. Not wanted to miss out. You looked at the uh, the women's game as well. Did you see a very different situation there? The women's game, obviously, growing hugely at the moment. Is it a completely different world in how that works, or do you see similarities?
1: Yeah, well, what I was really fascinated by with the women's game is that it seems to be, from from a youth perspective, it seems to be in a position that the that the men's and boys' game was maybe a decade or so ago, whereby it it seems to be at a crossroads where it's either going to plow on in a direction that the that the boys' game went went, or it's going to learn from the mistakes of the boys' game and. and and offer something slightly different and slightly more wholesome. Um, because at the moment it, it, it is a, a more kind of wholesome place to be. Uh women's football in general, there's a there's a greater connection between fans and players and the numbers are lower in, in terms of the the girls coming through the system. Um but but at the same time that the budget just isn't there. Uh, there's a lack of regulation which is preventing clubs from investing um in youth development as as they do on the boys side. So yeah, it's kind of it's it's ripe for revolution, and it's going to be interesting to see which direction it goes. So, I I spent an evening with with Liverpool's uh, women's academy director uh, Julie Grundy. I also met with Arsenal's uh, women's academy director um, James Honeyman, and they just had some really interesting perspectives about where the game is, where it's come, because of course you know women's football was effectively banned in this country for for 50 yeah. years up until the 70s and it's been kind of playing catch up ever since but now with the advent of the of the Super League the influx of, of money and attention that, that's been brought there it's not a million miles away to, to be at the introduction of the Premier League in the early 90s and the knock on effects that, that that had down the line for for youth football um, so by the time the late 90s came around um, again it's something I covered in the book I spoke with Howard Wilkinson who was the FA Technical Director at the, at the time in 1997 he was tasked with kind of uh, revamping youth football in this country, he drew up the Chart of Equality, which was the predecessor to EPPP as, as a set of rules and guidelines for youth football in, in England. And he pretty much drew up the blueprint for the modern academy system and he saw the way the finances were going in the game and that the clubs were now more financially powerful than the governing body. So he decided to hand power back to the clubs to set up these academies and to take responsibility for the development of young players, whereas before schools football had been the predominant force in youth development, and clubs weren't able to sign a player to exclusive terms until they were fourteen when they would sign a schoolboy contract. Um, that completely flipped, where we now you know clubs are the predominant force in, in youth development, and they have players from eight years old and up, and it created this kind of mass system that we see now. So girls' football isn't quite there yet. They don't, they have um, rather than academies, they're called re- regional talent centres. They're still overseen by the FA. There are around thirty of them in the country, either run by clubs or by local FAs. And um, of course, there are, there are, there's a disparity between the levels of funding that each able to offer. Um, there's a big gap in scouting in, in, in girls' football because so many academies are based at you know in kind of. Um, leafy suburban areas, they're not in, in inner cities. And there's, there's no budget at any of these clubs for a proper scouting programme like there is for men's football where they'll send hundreds of scouts out each week to go and view the best young players in the country and find and go and find them. The best girls players have to go and find, the academies have to go to open trials. So it, it relies on them being able to, to travel to these um, academies. You know, for example, in London, there's, there's no top level regional talent centre within the city limits it's all it's they're all outside the M25 effectively um so it's difficult for the the uh, an an underprivileged inner city girl to find her way to to a top level academy for an open trial so they just get missed there's a big gap in it was something Nikita Paris the England forward talked about you know inner city girls are getting completely missed by the system because there's no scouting at all and because they don't have access to the, to these these academies so that's that's a real real gap um and one of the issues is as well one of the reasons P has been so controversial particularly in the eyes of the smaller clubs is that it has what what is what's called a fixed compensation system whereby every player in the system who's signed from the under-9s level up is given a value um and that is quite an unsavory notion to, to think of a a 9 an 8 and 9 year old having a price tag on their head um the, the reason that that was that done is to uh, try and guard against tribunal processes between players who want to change clubs and, and clubs trying to sign a player and not pay able degree a fee. Now the fee is there, everyone knows it and it's set out beforehand so if the club wants to buy a player they have to just meet that fee. Um, smaller clubs feel it undervalues their best talent and they feel it allows the top clubs to stockpile and to cherry pick. That's why it's controversial but interestingly in speaking with Arsenal's academy manager James Honeyman he said that women's football would love something like that and the fact that they don't have anything like that is what's holding them back in a way because at the moment it's kind of the wild west there's no obligation for one club to compensate another for signing one of their players there's a complete freedom of movement which you might say is a good thing for the players themselves because if you know if they don't like the situation they're in they can go to another club but what it leads to is um, clubs feeling like they're not protected enough to be able to invest in the development of their female uh, academies because they could spend four or five years developing the next best female player for just out of the blue for one of their rivals to come and pick her away. And there's, there's no recourse to any kind of compensation. So, so at the moment they're just not investing to the same levels that they are in the men's game. So there's no scouting system and there's the, you know, the levels of facilities aren't always the same. The levels of coaching and full-time roles in the academies aren't the same. So that's what's holding it back. And that, like I said, is, is, is kind of the next stage of its, its evolution. And it's going to be interesting to see whether some of the, the the women's game can learn from the mistakes that the men's game has made.
0: Uh, unfortunately, time is defeating us. But there's one last thing that did surprise me in the book: is scout the scouts themselves. You talked to now. Obviously, I took great joy in reading about the incompetence of Ed Woodward uh, as a city <laughs> fan. Uh, but I was surprised at the disillusionment of some, I'd say, old school but long-serving scouts at how the game has changed as well, and their job has changed. Uh, did did it surprise you how you know that basically I think if I'm right and say what they said you know there's a move away to stats and you know performance and real analysis which obviously has a place in the sport but they kind of lost that system of just using your eyes and knowing a good player and you know judging it on them and just the system itself is so huge that they're just losing out on players a lot and yeah I just said I was surprised by the disillusionment of a lot of scouts who seem to be usurped by uh, a new crowd of analysts and and so on, and a new breed and how the games change for them for the worse.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a really interesting world um, and, and the, the scouts I spoke to, um, I've got, as you mentioned, I spoke to Man um, United's former um, I think it was Head of Youth Recruitment was his title. I spoke with a scouting coordinator from Chelsea. I spoke to the Liverpool scout. Um, the general feeling is that um, yeah they are their their expertise is undervalued um, in the modern game now um, so their, their ability to to spot a player which um, is something that is it's a craft that they've honed over decades of trudging to, uh, trudging the sidelines up and down the country watching young players and their, their skill is to not only be able to assess a player's current level of ability but also they've got to be able to see into the future and think about what that player could become, um, and it's quite you know it's quite a skilled uh, skill position to to have, and, and like I said, it comes from what, it comes from vast experience. But now that experience they feel has been undervalued because more and more scouts I think are finding their recommendations being ignored. So I spoke with the Chelsea scout who said he recommended Dele Alley at a young age when he was at MK Dons. He would have been a really easy signing for Chelsea, but they never bothered uh, following up on it at all and he, he went to Spurs at 18 and, and did what he did. Um, talked about how, uh, with the Man United scout, how he recommended the likes of, um, the Ajax boys, um, Frankie de Jong, um, Donny van Der Beek, who they've since, since signed, um, and Betais de Litt, or all, all at really young ages, um, but was ignored. Um, and, and how they feel there's a, a, a drive towards, um, a remote recruitment um, model way where, where you're looking at stats and things for the, for the high level players. And a lot of it's done on laptops a long way away from the actual pitches that these games are taking place on. And also a, a big factor is that scouts by and large are the most disposable people in the whole system. Um, most of them uh, do this on a, on a part-time part-time basis. They're not, you know, they have, they have day jobs. Um, they're just paid. Uh, a small kind of retainer for their services, and then on top of that, they might get a mileage rate based on how far they travel to watch a game. Um, so they're just very easily disposed of, um, when, when time comes to either cut costs or to move in a different direction. Um, so yeah, a lot is known obviously about the disposability of the players themselves, but scouts are, are equally or more so disposable, it seems, within the system. Um, I, the, the, um the guy who was a former Chelsea scouting coordinator I spoke with also worked in the same position for Arsenal for a few years after he left Chelsea. Um, his name's Martin Taylor, someone I've come to know quite well. He told me... Um, actually, when we met, I went and met him down in London. he just, a few weeks before that, being let go by Arsenal, was going through a whole sort of tribunal process um, uh, contesting his dismissal because he was, he was told he was being let go for cost-cutting reasons, that the, the, the budget wasn't being there. Arsenal had just been... Uh, I just missed out on Champions League, I think, for a second year in a row. So they're tightening their belt. So he was, he was a victim of that. But then a couple of weeks later, they went and spent seventy-two million on Nicolas Pepe. <laughs> so just that's you know, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, that's just kind of the world that, that they operate in and how how valued they, they, they are.
0: Yeah, sucking dinosaurus and getting really <laughs> another three hundred grand a week or whatever. Yeah, it's like dichotomy there. So so yeah, just finally, we when you finish the book, you've put it all together surprised by what you found by talking to people? Do you leave you disillusioned at all? Or do you, do you just think, well, the system has its pluses, its minuses, and it is what it is? And the key question, I think, is if you were all powerful, what would you change to the the system as it stands?
1: Yes, I think uh, to the first part of your question, um, elements of it surprised me. The, the biggest surprises were probably positive ones, though. Um, I think there's a lot of reason for hope. So as I said, there are a lot of really good people doing great work. Um, that's what I was most encouraged by. And those are the personalities, I think, who shine through brightest in the book. Um, it's certainly not an overridingly ne- negative book. It's just, it's a warts and all picture of the, of the academy system. So the good is right there with the bad and everything in between. Um, so yeah, one of the biggest surprises was just learning learning the, the, the vastness of, of, of the good work being done, which was really encouraging. Um, of course, there are there are huge downsides to it and there's a long way to go. And I still, even though all these great players are being produced now um, at a really sort of sustainable level there's a real pipeline of talent at so many clubs that's feeding into this great England team we've seen now and it's not only helping develop the players we've seen on the pitch but also it's really helping foster the the switched on attitudes and the social awareness that uh, that we see in these these young players as well which is incredibly encouraging I think it's one of the biggest reasons why so many people reconnected with the England team this summer I certainly found that myself it's just rooting for this group of boy, young young men who um, are just a bunch of good eggs and I think while their parents deserve credit for that the, boy, the players themselves deserve credit for that I think a lot of what is going on in academies now as well has played into that and there's a big element of that in the book that I, I looked at Marcus Rashford in particular and how what United were doing there um, helped foster his kind of social conscience his sense of social responsibility and his, his altruism and charitable, charitable uh, side of his personality and that's happening uh, academies all up and down the country, and it's really encouraging. Um, so those are some of the biggest surprises on, on a, in a very positive way. In terms of what I would change, um, it'll be what we spoke about. I think there are too many players in the system, and I think that's the biggest issue it has. Um, that's why the attrition rates are so high. So I don't know what the, the, the perfect answer is, Um I know clubs like Brentford and Huddersfield and others have disbanded their academy and adopted a B-team model, whereby they only recruit players from the ages of 16 and up to play for their B-team. And they believe that every player they recruit has a genuine chance of making it into their first team. So they're stepping away from the system. and They think they, they, their model now is one that doesn't necessitate the level of heartbreak that the, that the, the, uh, the conventional system does. But by the same token... They are also still reliant on other people training those players up until they reach the age of 16. So they are going to sign them from elsewhere or they'll pick them up when they're released. These aren't players coming off the street at 16 they're signing. So if everybody does what Brentford did then <clears throat> the system kind of collapses because nobody's getting formal training until they're 16 and you won't produce the same level of players. So there has to be some kind of middle ground. I um, would love to see players signed at, at older ages rather than under nines and up. Um, or perhaps... Only be able to sign to some kind of informal contract where they, they don't train quite as often with the club or, or whereby they, they play for a affiliated grassroots teams for, for, for longer rather than being, um, you know, having that club crest on their shirt at such a young age and all that that can lead to. So I don't know what the exact answer is. I'm not sure there is a golden bullet to, to, to solve it all, but my biggest objection to the system in its current state is just the sheer numbers. Um, so that would be what I would change. Hmm.
0: But it has? Do you think the system has produced this England team in a way? It has produced. It has produced the talent, so to speak. Yeah. Obviously, it's a we're huge not talking practice. about just English players anyway. But yeah, you know, if we look at the English side of things, then yeah, it has I think worked so. in that respect, yeah,
1: everything. The way the system is developed, uh, where practices, best practices have developed, been updated over the last twenty years or so since the academy system was formulated in the late nineties it's all been a a direction of travel. I think that's trended towards the point right now where it's not just a, you know, the the golden generation of the mid noughties was, was really just six or seven very, very good players who have to come through at the same time. I think now we're, we're producing a quality of player um, at a consistent rate that we, we haven't seen before. And I think it is largely a result of, of these, of, of how, um, the coaches themselves doing the work have developed and, and, and learned from elsewhere and, and put together something that works for, for for English football for English players and we're seeing the fruits of that now
0: and yet Chelsea was still rejected by Sterling because he was too small.
1: Exactly. Right. There you go. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, the lesson they learned there.
0: <laughs> every club lets some players slip through. so yeah. uh, Chelsea quite a few. Right, that's. Been, I could talk for a lot longer, but unfortunately, I really do need to open a window now <laughs> because it's. <laughs> I think it's gone past eighty degrees. A long time ago. Uh, Ryan, that was fascinating stuff. Thanks for coming on and talking
1: about your book. My pleasure. Thanks, Howard. Yeah, pre- I appreciate. Appreciate. uh being given the opportunity. Yeah. So the Dream Factory, fifth of August. Got that right. Yeah. Uh, that's it it's brilliant i read
0: a brilliant read so really recommend it to everyone who's listening to this and why not check out the previous book as well whilst you're at it uh so thanks for listening everyone i hope you enjoyed that loads more shows coming up soon as well this week as the new season comes nearer take care everyone stay safe and stay cool